Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. Welcome to our webinar, Is This How CBDCs Will Happen? Major Global Currencies. It's seven years to the month, if not the day, since Ben Broadbent, then as now Deputy Governor for Monetary Policy at the Bank of England, popularized the phrase central bank digital currency or CBDC. Rereading his famous speech on the topic a few days ago, I was struck by how little the issues. Who should have access to central bank money? Should it just be banks or can it be non-banks? Can it even be individual consumers? Would a CBDC drain the commercial banks of the deposits that fund their loans? What would happen to the price of bank loans if banks had to rely entirely on wholesale funding? Are capital market supplements the obvious use case for CBDCs? So here we are seven years on, the Bank of England, which published another consultation paper on digital pound only last month, is still researching CBDCs in 2023, just as it was back in 2016. And it's still asking itself and us the same question as our 92 other central banks around the world. There are at least 15, possibly now 16, CBDC proofs of concept and pilot tests going on around the world, and many more have been completed months or even years ago. Yet seven years on, we have just four CBDCs live in the world, and not one in a major currency. As the title of our webinar intended, isn't it time to make something happen? rather than just talk about it and write about it. Now, bureaucratic minds tend to think that writing a paper or completing a proof of concept or commissioning a pilot test are the equivalent of action, but they're not, obviously. Indeed, I've begun to think that one effect of all the ink spilt on CBDC since we've lost sight of some of the bigger questions that Ben Broadbent asked seven years ago amid yet another series of bank failures, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and even the mighty Credit Suisse. It's worth remembering that in March 2016, Ben Broadbent asked the same question we asked at the very first Future of Finance decade ago. Is it time to move to a narrow 100% reserve banking system? Is a CBDC an opportunity to do that? Are fractional reserve banks the best institutions we can devise to transfer value through time? In other words, to manufacture credit. Another question he asked is, why isn't retail banking service? Is a CBDC an opportunity to switch to utility banking instead of forcing banks to offer uh, banking services to many of their customers at a loss? What is the important innovation, Ben Broadbent asked, that Bitcoin offers? Now, that question may still be unanswerable, but if we still don't know the answer, in cryptocurrency and stablecoin experiments with regulation the best way to find out? Do we think regulation rather than redesign is still the best way to create a more stable financial system for the longer term? Might crypto not light the path not to more and worse of what we have already, but to a more innovative, less dangerous banking system? These were all questions that Ben Broadbent asked seven years ago, but have not been asked much of late. And I hope we'll have time to touch upon some of them today. But the bulk of our conversation is going to be about making CBDCs happen in major currencies. What have we learned about what to do and what not to do from the pioneering CBDCs in issue? Do we, after all this research and development, have a settled model for issuing a CBDC? How will CBDCs interact or interoperate, as the term has it, with commercial forms of money? Or to put it another way, how can multiple forms of money be made easily exchangeable for each other? 
Will CBDCs be programmable or is that functionality going to be reserved for commercial forms of money only? To help us answer these and other questions, we're joined by four experts in the field of CBDCs. Ricardo Correa is Global Head of CBDC and Digital Currencies at R3, where he and his team work with private and public sector organizations on the development of markets for digital currencies and digital assets. Arnie Reynolds is Global Head of Shearman and Sterling's Financial Services Industry Group, which advises financial institutions and infrastructures, governments and public bodies, including on financial markets, law and regulation. Gilbert Verdian is CEO at Quant, which is dedicated to making blockchain protocols and traditional systems interoperable. Keith Baer is a fellow at Cambridge University's Centre for Alternative Finance, which is part of the Judge Business School, which he joined from IBM. Keith works with fintechs, exchanges and central banks. He is also a member of the Bank of England CBDC Technology Forum. In addition to our panellists, we as always also have you, our audience. Uh, all five of us encourage everybody watching or listening to submit their questions and comments throughout this webinar by using the Q&A functionality at the bottom of the Zoom screen. Indeed, we've already had our first question. Thank you, uh, Dennis Boyle from Chainalysis. Uh, I won't be saving those questions up to the end, uh, but I will answer them or get our panelists to answer them as we go along. So everybody can be an integral part of this discussion right from the outset. Now, I'd like to begin uh, by asking a question of what we have learned uh, from the CBDCs that are live today. I'm referring to the Bahamas uh, sand dollar, the Eastern Caribbean decash, the uh, Nigerian e-Naira and the Jamaican uh, Jamdex. As far as I can tell, they haven't been that successful. After a year, the e-Naira had only 1 million users uh, at an adult population of 110 million Nigerians. And the central bank has, in fact, had to limit cash withdrawals uh, to try and stimulate take-up. So that's a take-up rate of less than 1% uh, of the adults in Nigeria. In the Bahamas, the IMF went there and found only 20,000 sand dollar wallets uh, in a Bahamian population of 400,000 people. So that's a bit better. It's a 5% take-up, but still not a resounding vote of success. As for the Eastern Caribbean decash, it actually suffered an outage uh, this time last year. And uh, Jamdex in Jamaica, as far as I can tell, has so far had only two banks signed up. Then we've had these other projects, uh, the eKrona in Sweden and the Digital Yuan in China. Both of those seem to have been going on for a very long time uh, without reaching a conclusion. Uh, we've got some fresh candidates now for CBDCs in both Brazil uh, and Kazakhstan. So my question is, what have we learned from the projects which have gone live into the field about matters such as technology choices, how to get consumers and indeed businesses to take up these CBDCs, how those CBDCs interoperate with existing forms of, of payment, and of course that important question Ben Broadbent asked, which is uh, what has it done to commercial bank deposits? So Ricardo, perhaps I could ask you to address this question first. What have we actually learned from the projects which uh, uh, the CBDCs which are in the field already and those which are about to enter the field or those which like the the digital renminbi and the e-krona are uh, um, have made more progress than, than than most. What do we what do we know about what to do and what not to do? Thanks, Dominic. Nice to be here, and uh, um, thanks for inviting me as always. So yeah, so first of all, good summary. I think the key things that we've learned so far, we've been kind of in the field, so to speak, for about seven years. Many different projects, um, as some of you would have seen. I think the key thing that we see, which is uh, 
an age-old problem is adoption, right? So how do we drive adoption of new technologies and kind of new services? And that continues to be the key, the key theme. You've 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 clearly pointed that out. Um, so adoption is key. Technology becomes less and less of a concern as we've moved through the various stages of proof of concepts and testing different techs. Um, the things that become more important uh, to think about are the legal and political landscapes uh, and, and how to navigate some of that uh, kind of both domestically and globally. And the key thing that we see more lately is foregoing you know, uh, the conversations of governance and operations right up front as the CBDCs are designed um, uh, even before being put into pilot and production. So governance and operations, really important. We've seen some central banks um, more recently focus on, um, you know, another really big component, which is ecosystem collaboration and integration, making sure that you bring your ecosystem along the journey right up front, very strong collaboration with the banks, payment service providers, businesses, and even retailers um, as, as the central banks go about thinking about the design implementation rollout of a CBDC. So ecosystem interoperability, uh, integration and collaboration key, and then governance and operations and a really key concern. Some of the outages that we've seen have been a direct result of you know, governance and operations kind of regimes that perhaps uh, could have been elevated. Um, so those are the key things we're seeing. Mm -hmm. Right. So so governance matters. Keith, um, we've seen uh, also, I didn't mention this, that you know, the Bank of Japan is going to start an experiment next month with, with the private sector. We've had the, the consultation paper in the Bank of England saying it is likely a digital pound will be needed in the future, which is about as close as a central banker can get to, to making a very firm um, commitment. So, what's your what's your take on on what we've learned from all the work that's been done so far about actually getting a central bank digital currency off the ground in a major currency such as the U.S. dollar, the euro, sterling, yen? Uh, yeah, good question. So, just to add a little more color uh, and background, maybe on the examples you already gave. Uh, so, in the case of uh, Nigeria and the Yenara, I saw some figures from the Bruegel Institute yesterday at a OECD conference. Uh, the figures they have is there's something like three billion naras worth of Yenara that are in circulation, which represents about 0.01% of N0 in Nigeria. So, consistent with the point you made about uh, 1 million wallets, mm. uh, about $303,000 uh, in sand dollars, which represents about 0.17% in the Bahamas economy. And 13.6 uh, billion yuan, which represents about 0.13% of the Chinese economy. So uh, clearly there's, a, as you rightly say, a significant um, issue in terms of adoption at the moment. And I think one of the big learning points from these three examples uh, just illustrates some of the challenges that exist. And I'll come back to that because I think it, uh, what Ricardo mentioned on ecosystem is a key element of it. Uh, the other more recent news I saw yesterday on the Inara, the figures you mentioned, the 1 million wallets, was true in October last year. Since then, the Bank, Central Bank of Nigeria have been going through a major replacement of uh, old notes with new notes that has created a shortage of physical notes for people to make payments using cash, interestingly. Uh, whether that was intentional or unintentional, I'm not sure. But since uh, October, the number of wallets has actually jumped 12-fold now to 13 uh, million. Uh, so a much more significant increase than had been the case in the, up to the point you mentioned in the first year. And the value of transactions using Inara has also climbed 63% up to 22 billion uh, narrow, which is about $48 million 
uh, just this year. So it has gone through a significant spike, uh, but that may be to do, as I said, with shortage of physical cash rather than any other drivers. Uh, but the, the three takeaways from my point of view of those examples, uh, there's three real key factors to focus on, I think, and this uh, you know, is input, I think, to the UK and any other major country which is considering a CBTC. The first is around access. Uh, so in Nigeria, from memory, something like 43% uh, of the population has access to a smartphone. Uh, I, 57% don't. Uh, so for taking advantage of those kinds of facilities, uh, having access to a CBDC and whatever form factor is appropriate uh, is key, especially for those countries like Nigeria and uh, Bahamas who are uh, trying to solve for some elements of financial inclusion as part of their uh, approach to a CBDC. Uh, second point is around trust, and trust is intimately linked, I think, in the world of CBDCs with privacy, the level of privacy, uh, giving, you know, potentially giving uh, information on one's personal financial dealings to the central bank equals the government and some uh, people's perceptions. So I think the trust is a key issue that I think has been a major issue in Nigeria as far as the adoption is concerned. Uh, and obviously in developed markets like Europe and the UK, privacy has been a, a big factor in terms of some of the consultation exercises. So being able to both demonstrate the right approach to privacy, and as you say, the Bank of England's approach is that there'll be no personal information held by the bank. It'll all be anonymized in that respect. Um, however, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean there won't be um, uninformed or uh, misconceived views on how privacy has been implemented in the CBT in certain parts of uh, social media or whatever. And that can have a significant impact in terms of trust as well. So those two factors uh, are really important. And that, I think, also comes back to education, awareness, all the other things that have to take place uh, to give confidence in a CBDC and that it is respectful of privacy uh, in the same way as the existing financial system is. And the third key point, I think, is really about utility. Uh, why would anyone want to use a CBDC and the complexity of handling and managing uh, a separate wallet alongside all the commercial bank account uh, that you individual or businesses may have? So it really comes down to what are the additional things that you can do that add value, uh, either doing things more efficiently or more quickly as a retailer or a, uh, as a consumer, or being able to do new things which you couldn't do before with uh, existing uh, payment mechanisms, for example. And that all leads, I think, to the question of innovation. How can the, in the UK's case, the payment information, uh, payment interface providers, the PIPs, the banks that act as the intermediaries, to what extent can they really develop innovative new propositions on the top of a CBDC platform in order to achieve that real question of uh, utility? And uh, at the uh, OECD conference I was at yesterday, we had presentations from the Central Bank of Brazil and also the Reserve Bank of Australia. And they are both engaged in um, pilots at the moment, which have an extensive, uh, to Ricardo's point, engagement with the uh, broader ecosystem, including things in the case of Brazil, for example, of using DeFi, using a CBDC in a DeFi environment uh, for the rural economy, for instance. And uh, the RBA is also looking at use cases which will use uh, wholesale CBDCs as backing for stablecoins. So a lot of interesting uh, developments, very much in a pilot stage, an experimental stage, not an implementation stage. But I think those are the things that will really answer the third point I made in terms of utility. And that's so important, I think, for the UK in terms of the uh, British uh, CBDC, but CBDCs generally in terms of being able to drive adoption, given the increase in complexity and potential confusion that might exist with uh, commercial bank accounts sitting alongside CBDC, CBDC wallets for uh, retail consumers and for merchants. 
uh, Ricardo, you Keith brought up this question of, of DeFi, um, and I, I think we could, we could address this now. One of one of the, the these these projects which is going on, Project Mariana, uh, has proposed using uh, DeFi-style automated market makers to match two sides of a trade, cross-border payments, basically. And I know that R3 also published a paper on that topic as well. Um, it's a slightly different point, I think, from what Keith was making. But it, it is interesting that here we have central banks looking at the most revolutionary part of the uh, the decentralized finance markets to for potential solutions to 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 problems. I mean, is, is it going to be a good idea to have automated market makers in cross-border payments? Well, uh, yeah, I think, listen, the reason that we wrote about it is because we honestly believe that it's a good idea. However, um, you know, AMM in its current form is probably not going to be adopted wholesale from DeFi into regulated markets. So, you know, there needs to be kind of an adaptation to meet the needs of the central banks. Um, and you know the three adaptations that central banks could consider perhaps are things like incentives, you know, a little bit a little bit attached to the utility that uh, Keith just talked about, the actual formula, and things like operations and governance. Who's going to run it? How's it's going to run? What are the governance regimes attached to it, and so on? So I think there's tremendous benefit in understanding it, but I'm not uh, certainly we don't believe that you can lift and shift and wholesale kind of uh, uh, implement it as it's implemented today. Mm -hmm. Now, again, we're perhaps getting ahead of ourselves a bit here, but, but Brady Storm has asked this question. How can we sure CBDC won't turn into programmable money the government can use to control over what we can spend and what we can what we can spend it on? Now, my investigations, you know, preparing for this webinar is that um, I didn't get the sense that any of these central banks are really looking at, at programmable CBDCs. They'd much rather leave it to to commercial providers to do that, because that'll be one of the ways in which they seek competitive advantage um, in the in the in the marketplace. So I did see the Monetary Authority in Singapore is, is kind of looking at that very issue. Should should their CBDC be programmable? The Bank of England, on the other hand, specifically rules out a programmable digital pound uh, because it would make it unlike notes and coins. It would no longer be uniform. Yes, uh, but it must be very tempting for governments to say, well. We're going to give you some money in social security payments. We're not allowed to spend it on tobacco and alcohol. Well, that comes back to trust, I think, to some extent, one of that central criteria. I think that's one of the reasons that the bank have uh, taken the approach they have, where programmability will exist, but only, as you say, at the payment interface provider level, not at the central bank level. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Christine Lagarde made the point that if there was programmability at the ECB in that case, it would be more of a, a voucher or a token rather than a central bank digital currency in that respect. So mm -hmm. I think both for Europe and for the UK, uh, there will be no programmability at the central bank side. But as uh, you've said, it's core, I think, to innovation at the intermediary side. And how, how just Keith, on a narrow question, how how important is the question of safety with programmability? You know, these smart contracts can get hacked, can't they? Is that is that a live discussion on the in the Bank of England CBDC technology forum? Well, I, um, not yet. I would suggest. I think it's an important point uh, because the central bank, Bank of England, will lay down the format, the rules, the structure, the architecture, etc., mm -hmm. to the uh, payment interface providers. So they will have to abide by a set of rules in terms of how they manage their obligations, in terms of wallets, uh, programmability, etc. Um, so they will have to operate by a set of standards set by the central bank. 
And the point you make in terms of uh, you know security and resilience, for example, uh, change management, all these factors that have, could have a bearing on um, the, the safety and security of a CBDC are going to be important things to do. So I don't think there are necessarily answers on how that can be done yet. But obviously, in the bank's case, it's, you know, we're on a two year journey of experimentation and pilots at the moment before we get to a decision on implementation. And I think that would be one of the key questions that will need to be looked at, to your point. And just to Gilbert, be I think you, you did you want, sorry. sorry, Ricardo, Gilbert, did you want to say something about uh, we're on programmability, I think? Yeah, I, I think um, what we need to consider is um, this is a new, <clears throat> new form of money. It's a new payment instrument. And with that, it's going to be treated the same as underlying national critical infrastructure. And with national critical infrastructure, you you have the the, the concept of trust that you can trust that that your money is safe. It's it's deposited with the banks, and when you make a transaction, there is acceptance and uh, it is processed as as it should. And the whole underlying system is safe. So so central banks, one of the biggest concerns is resilience of the system and having a cbdc in you know bahamas or another jurisdiction go down doesn't really help the the use case and and the adoption question uh because people uh need to trust the system and uh and and when you don't i mean i mean we've been very lucky in the uk we've had almost about a hundred percent uptime in resilience without any impact to the payment system for the last 15 years and and that's very hard to achieve very costly to achieve but but it, the trust is there in, in the system. So on the programmability side, um, central banks really are not interested in uh, you know, conditional payments, uh, restrict, restrict, restrictive payments, and um, using programmability for, for privacy purposes and looking at how people spend their money. That, that's not the mission of central banks, that they are there to ensure the policies are, are in place and the system is resilient and and. Uh, you know, make the right calls in terms of interest rates, etc. Um, the onus is actually on commercial banks to make sure they comply with those policies and all the AML, KYC, um, all the regulatory requirements that have around fraud protection, consumer protection, deposit protection, will be the same for CBDC as as it is for cash. Um, so for a commercial bank, it's it's just another account for their consumer or for their business customer. Um, and the obligations on are, are basically back on the central on, on the commercial bank. The programmability is a way where the commercial bank can innovate with different types of products and use the functionality within smart contracts, for example, or or other you know innovation and other tech to create and differentiate different payment products, different lending products, uh, automating a workflow that's a complex thing for business and really differentiating to have a new form of payment instrument. And that's what's going to drive usage and eventual migration to smart money, because you can you can add some logic to it, you can tell it to do a few things and automate processes. Um, and there will always be cash, there will always be a normal fiat pound, and alongside that, there will be a digital one. On that question, what do you you think that Ben Broadbent's idea of a utility, a sort of state-owned utility bank to provide basic, you know, checking accounts, what we used to call checking accounts, would be a good decision rather than leaving that in the hands of the hands of the banks? Your look says it all, Gilbert. Um, uh, I, 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 an interesting thought about this is is that on on um, 
on another point you made, it's not the role of the central bank to uh, to see how people are spending their money. They could make much better interest rate calls if they did have a better idea of how people were spending money, couldn't they? So is this this is where the, the shoe pinches on the on civil liberty versus you know economic efficiency, isn't it? And and you have to come down one side or the other. Yeah, I think the way they can improve that is by having um, better reporting back from the commercial banks to the central bank, rather than waiting for monthly reports or every few hours, there's a there's a net settlement, and then they understand the position of, of the system. If they have that reporting, obviously, it's anonymized, you know, that they're not going to look at Dominic Hobson and your sort code and account number and what you, what you spent, mm -hmm. you know, money on, on a sandwich, they're going to look at the system as a whole. And that can help predict and even prevent future financial crises because you're able to see liquidity issues, you're able to see risk issues and anything systemic that can affect and have a contagion to, to the rest of the system. Um, on your point of government banks, I, I really don't think that's a good idea. That the, the way governments enable um, access is through regulation. And, you know, we've seen um, there's a whole, you know, method around the unbanked uh, regulation basically tells the commercial banks you need to open up an account for people without a fixed address, and there's, that's regulation, and they have to do it. So, so you don't have to go back to the state to be able to offer those services. The banking system today can can do that on its own. Mm -hmm. Now, Henry Rashen has asked a a, a a basic question here. He says, in the UK, what would be the impact on the Bank of England's own balance sheet management uh, of Bank of England CBDCs disintermediating commercial or he says, I believe the Bank of England's balance sheet total is currently one trillion pounds and the combined commercial retail deposits of the big four banks are one and a half trillion. Now, the Bank of England does address this question directly in its in its recent consultation paper. It puts a cap on how much CBDC people can hold. It's somewhere between 10 and 20,000 pounds. It thinks that 75, 95 percent of all wage earners, they can be paid in CBDC without breaching that that cap. And corporates would have a cap, too, but that would probably be set a bit a bit higher. They've also said the CBDC will not be interest bearing, so they don't want it to compete uh, with commercial bank funding from from deposits. So in, in a way, this is that original question back in 2016, you know, if we have a CBDC, is it going to disrupt um, bank funding? What's, what's the, I mean, in, in your mind, I don't know, Barney, whether you want to chip on, in on this, but um, uh, Keith, maybe you're the person best placed to answer this. Um, you know, is the Bank of England's remedies for Henry's concern here that banks suddenly won't have any funding from retail deposits anymore? Uh, are there solutions which seem rather crude in a way, no interest and a cap on how much you can hold again to work? Is 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 there a better answer here? Uh, well, a couple of comments on that. Uh, one is that the cap, as you say, between ten or twenty thousand, is an initial cap, and obviously that could disappear or could change depending on what the rate of adoption of a CBDC is. So I think it's just a starting position, as you said, mindful of the, the way that a CBDC could be used in that respect. And I guess that gives a, a means of being able to quantify the worst case scenario in terms of any outflow from commercial bank accounts into a CBDC. And as you know, the Bank of England have actually modeled that, assuming I think something like a 20% um, kind of figure associated with that uh, migration. Uh, so I think, you know, it's well modeled. It's interesting, I think, to see that the proposed cap for the digital euro is quite a bit less than that. I think, is it five or 6,000 euros, something like that? Uh, so quite a bit less. But I think in both cases, these are kind of experimental positions based on modeling. 
um, and are likely to change as there's a, a better idea of what kind of CBDC will be implemented, what the rate of adoption is likely to be, and what the appropriate level of a cap is required in order to manage the adoption on a, uh, a careful basis. Barney, I don't know if you've got anything to add to that. Well, um, I mean, on the bank, I mean, the, the question from Henry Reshen is 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 um, a very subtle one about the Bank of England's own balance sheet management, which is a sort of um, sui generis topic. Um, I mean, I don't. I mean, I, I, yeah, on that, I, 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 I'm not sure whether there is a, there is a risk from this or not. I mean, on the commercial bank side, which is which is more in the general legal and regulatory world. Um, obviously, the risk is that um, you know banks, commercial bank sources of funding, um, uh, sort of become more precarious. Um, and then you raised the question earlier, Dominic, of whether or not commercial banks should be engaging in maturity transformation anymore. Um, I think they need to because I think um, you know um, I, I think the needs of uh, people providing, willing to provide money on particular tenors. Um, need matching to the opportunities to invest. Someone has to do that and things don't perfectly match. So yes, there are pension funds that engage in longer term investing than many others, but that doesn't mean that um, they want to be the only source of uh, funds for the mortgage market, for instance. Uh, and then you know there are lots of uh, retail people that um, want steady interest rates, but again, um, you know, the short-term usage of their funds may not sufficiently attractive so and furthermore you know you could have concentration risk uh, for longer tail um, tenors if um, only a few types of people of, of firm are prepared to invest in that way so I think maturity transformation is necessary I don't think we this although um, CBDC and DLT and so on cause us to revisit some basic propositions I don't think we should tear up everything that we've developed over the last you know centuries uh, in banking I think the I mean on the governance point uh, we do need a robust governance system uh, the good thing there is English law um, is very uh, nationally and and internationally um, I mean we can only you know you can only look at what happened in relation to the credit suites alternative tier one uh, issuances uh, to see what I don't think would happen here in the same way um, so I think we have a much prized and trusted system uh, obviously the governance rules will be need to be written very clearly and thoughtfully uh, and interpreted pragmatically on a case-by-case -case basis using precedent uh, which is basically our, the secret source of our system um, I think there will need to be, I mean, I don't think it's going to be as cut and dried as saying the bank will never have access to personal data or important data on, on who's using what for what. Um, you know, it, it, for instance, sanctions, um, which is a point of national policy, may have to be implemented in part through a CBDC uh, for, for those bits of the economy that are operating at that time on the basis of CBDC. We have a system of Secretary of State certificates for getting access to data for our security services, which I think is adequate for the task. Uh, there have been cases on that. Um, we participate in SWIFT, and that's subject to all sorts of restrictions of, on governance and access to data, which seem to be acceptable to the G10. Uh, then you've got the regulatory env environment, where 
you know, again, we got an inbuilt advantage of a highly trusted and sophisticated regulatory environment and regulators. You know, the, the lack of oversight of FTX has spooked uh, a lot of users. And I think uh, there'll be, uh, there is already a flight to quality. And then finally, there are problems to be solved like AML and KYC, where the pure CBDCs, which aren't intermediated by a government bank, which I agree, I don't think is a good idea. Uh, the government may need to get some third party to do the AML KYC for it directly, or the Bank of England. Um, so I think the universe of stuff and law and regulation, once one gets away from the central bank balance sheet, um, is relatively clear and the issues are clear. The actual central bank balance sheet management, the original question of Henry Rashen, um, is a highly complicated issue. Uh, I don't know the extent to which really the central bank relies on the funding from commercial bank deposits and whether that would be um, it would be problematic if there are a big swing to CBDCs. But obviously there would then need to be an adjustment if that were to be an issue. I suppose a final thought on this, the commercial banks holding CBDC on trust effectively, i.e. off balance sheet, um, I mean that that then would mean that there's no interest um, paid on the CBDC holdings for the reasons you said. I think it's right that the central bank doesn't offer interest on CBDC any more than it does on notes. Um, but um, obviously if interest rate rates are low, that puts banks in a tricky position. Maybe there'll be a shift to trust holdings of CBDCs in that environment. And the way for people to get returns then is to, for the banks to lend them out like some giant fund manager and pay a portion of the revenue from the, the profits uh, from the on lending of the CBDC. So I think, you know, it could sort of become a bit of a, a fund manager, a bank, a commercial bank could have a fund management role in relation to holdings of CBDC, where people are wanting returns, interest rates perhaps are low, uh, and so bank deposits are not, not that attractive. Um, and so new, the, the market will have to find new solutions to uh, providing those returns. Thanks, now, now, Zach Beecham's asked a crucial question here, which is really the essence of what we're talking about, timeline around CBDCs. Are we going to see mainstream adoption by 2025 or 2030? Now, Ricardo, this is a, a good question for you, because I, I said um, rather unkindly in my opening remarks that, that these um, experiments with projects go on forever. We've got 15 of them going on even now with various central banks, commercial banks, and the BIS innovation hubs and yourselves involved in these. And it seems to me that they've proved lots of useful things, but they have they become a kind of end in themselves, a kind of excuse for inaction by the central banks? Or is, to answer, to address Zach's question, can we expect something to happen within the next two years or the next seven years? I mean, where is this where is it going? What sort of timescale are we on here? Yeah. Major currencies. It's a good question, and I, you know, to your to your opening remarks, some of this is taking a long time. I think the eCrona project, when it kicked off, had a statement around the fact that you know we could be in a pilot or POC kind of state for up to seven years, as the central bank went through a whole bunch of research. You know, not necessarily on the technology, but more around central bank act policy, legal kind of you know, just really unpacking whether they could in fact issue a digital form of the Corona, which we 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 know now that you know there needs to be some reform there. Um, you know, to answer the question directly, you know, without having a, a crystal ball, certainly we see some of the economies moving a lot quicker 
um, in the recent months. So uh, we've seen statements coming out of some countries that suggest that, you know, within the next two, three years, we will see some issuance of a CBDC. Again, if we bifurcate retail and wholesale, I think uh, the, the answer to the question will be different. I'm assuming that Zach's question more on the retail end than the wholesale end. My view would be, you know, that, you know, wholesale, we started off in wholesale, we spent many years in wholesale. It seems to be a lot more clarity around uh, the benefits, um, the, the um, approach, the use cases, um, the incentives and so on around wholesale. Even uh, the point I was gonna make earlier on programmability, again, if you take programmability out of retail, it doesn't make much sense does kind of make sense perhaps in a wholesale environment. So, you know, wholesale, perhaps we'll see things move a bit quicker. Retail, lots of little minds to kind of navigate through. Um, that, that may take a, a longer time. Um, most of the banks will go through many different iterations of pilots before we see anything truly in production. Um, you know, the Bank of England paper suggests kind of by the end of uh, this Kind of 2030, I think. Uh, Keith, keep me honest. So you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of hazard a guess and say within the next five years, um, we should, we should start to see the initial rollouts of some production CBDCs. Probably not in the major economies um, that we talk about, uh, but certainly in some of the other economies that are quickly coming up the curve. Um, and if I can add Dominic to that, um, so post research and and post policy if if a central bank decides we are implementing a cbdc tomorrow we've done all the groundwork to get it live into the system that's a minimum three to five year program because there's a lot of uh, infrastructure that needs to be set up there's a lot of integration with existing banks and they all have to understand what does this mean for us as as a as a participant of this new financial system and what it means for their consumers without um, any regulatory issues or security issues or, or, or otherwise. So for them to go live uh, from, from day one, there, there's a lot of um, infrastructure testing, user acceptance testing, integration, and then finally going live. And then once it's live, that's when they actually start having the, the products that the consumers and businesses start using. So it is a, a longer play but you need that because you need to keep the system stable. You cannot have such a massive change within a payment system that can impact and, and cause outages to, to participants. And just to also add a little bit, if I may, uh, as uh, Ricardo said, 2030, end of the decade was the Bank of England's perspective, but the ECB, I think, is still talking about 2026 as a digital euro date. Uh -huh. um, so it could be a little earlier, and I think it'd be really interesting to see how that digital euro journey uh, progresses you know it's got a, a bit of a lead and an advantage I think at the moment in terms of the progression of uh, some of the early steps that uh, we just talked about um, but I think if it is as inverted commas as early as 2026 that will be uh, quite interesting in terms of how the deployment happens. Now I'm wondering Keith if one of the obstacles to getting this done and I'm talking here of of, of the major currencies because every market is different uh, um, Ricardo made that point at the outset the context matters uh, but is there in the major currencies now a consensus that the way forward is, is this two-tier model? So the, the, the commercial banks continue to do the, the customer-facing bit. That solves the question of ripping away their, their funding, the Henry Ration 
problems so they can't lend anymore it also leaves room still for for competition for for innovation to take place between those banks they can compete through interest rates through programmability through other features uh for for customer business is it you're nodding am i right to think there is a consensus now that's going to be the way this this actually happens now and once you've got that consensus it becomes easier to introduce it in euro dollars sterling yen does it not yeah i I, I personally believe yes there is a consensus i'm not aware of any major central Mm -hmm. bank that is looking to directly manage the distribution and and uh uh, all of the KYC and AML obligations itself for its broader population, not, not obviously not in the case of the examples we've been talking about. So uh, I, whilst there has been, um, you know, research going on to the alternative models that exist, uh, the kind of one tier, two tier, synthetic, et cetera, kind of approaches, uh, all of them seem to be gravitating, in my view, towards this uh, two tier model and for good reasons. You know, it's a, a balance between uh, the central bank doing what it needs to do in terms of financial stability, monetary policy implementation, managing the core ledger, et cetera, but allowing uh, the commercial banks that have the customer relationships, the merchant relationships uh, to be able to have the access to a CBDC and to be able to innovate on top of that access to actually drive more value to the broader economy. And I think I, to depend on that, uh, Dominic, yeah. so even so if you double click the two tiered system, there's a whole bunch of variation. Uh, within these models. So I think, you know, Keith makes the good point around preserving uh, some of the status quo, which is important. Um, uh, Gilbert mentioned the same AML, KYC sanctions and so on. But, you know, if I look at the Bank of England model versus the Brazilian model, uh, both two tiers, you'd argue, but very, very different in their approach. Um, And those different approaches may provide um, uh, kind of benefits that we're yet to understand, right? Because we haven't launched these things. So so just wanted to make the point that we started off very early saying, hey, maybe we'll distribute directly, um, or maybe there's this hybrid model or intermediated model. And if you've done enough reading, you, you start to understand that there's an overload of terms sometimes. So it's hard to kind of navigate through kind of what is the deterministic number of models that we've been looking at? Because there seems to be many. I think the two-tiered model is kind of what we see gravitation towards, but within that model, there's a whole bunch of variant uh, kind of variants that I think are important to understand at some point. Now, now, preserving the status quo isn't just about keeping the commercial banks alive. There's also a payments infrastructure, an RGGS system, automated clearinghouses, a variety of payments rails which consumers and businesses are using now. Is one of the intentions of this two-tier model to ensure you don't have to ripple that up as well? Uh, this is about the cost of the transition. Complexity. Complexity. Again, I, I don't think there's a broad brush for all of that. I think, you know, if I look at what the Central Bank of Brazil is doing, it's very, very different. Uh, you know, wholesale CBDC just for interbank kind of settlement versus, you know, tokenized deposits at the kind of retail end. Um, will that preserve some of the system? I think in developing countries, some of the current systems actually need to level up. Resilience, we heard earlier from maybe uh, maybe Gilbert or Barney, I forget, but resilience is resiliency is really important. Um, whereas the Bank of England, the model there is, yes. I mean, we also know that the Bank of England is going through an RTGS kind of renewal program. So the whole thing is being kind of uh, uh, rebuilt. Um, so again, I don't think there's a simple answer to that, to be honest. I think some, in some cases, it feels easier 
to kind of retain the RTGS, create a new account called CBDC, use reserves, mint off that, right? And start there. And then slowly perhaps go and innovate at the back end once you've got the front end going, you know? So, so yeah, we'll see how this plays out. But I mean, just to add a bit to that, I mean, the you know, many countries uh, have faster payment mechanisms of some sort. Brazil is a great example with PIX, I think, in yeah. terms of the adoption that is uh, taking place there. And I don't can't imagine any central bank would want to uh, disrupt those existing methods. But, you know, essentially they're based on commercial bank money and the CBDC is central bank money. So being able to bring them together takes you down the road of interoperability, integration and so on. So I think that's a much more likely approach rather than ripping up existing infrastructure because uh, that doesn't fulfill the objectives of uh, either side of the equation. And um, yeah. Barney, you, you, I was about to, to ask you about, about stable coins, but um, uh, I'm sure Keith Gilbert uh, and Ricardo have, have views on this, but that's, that's an innovation which is being brought within the regulatory perimeter as we speak in all the major economies. Uh, and not before time, given that we've seen some of the uh, some of the the non-bank stable coins, you know, had were depositing cash with banks which are no longer with us. So um, it's it, the asset-backed stable coins don't look quite as as steady as they did. Um, but is that is your sense, Barney, that that stable coins are an innovation which the the central banks and the other regulators want to want to sustain? Because it presents exactly the same threat to to commercial bank deposits as 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 a, as a CBDC does, but they seem to want to bring it within the banking system and keep it there. Provided you're a bank issuer of a stablecoin, that's fine. But they may be thinking differently in the wake of what's happened in the recent weeks. Well, I, I can't speak for their private thinking, but I, I think, um, as you say, I mean, the facts are that um, CPMS Iosco and the, the national regulators around the world, the UK is, is leading the way in many ways on this, uh, uh, developing a regime for the regulation of stablecoin. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, that involves, you know, extending payments, regulation, stablecoin, working out what sort of assets they need to be backed by and what, you know, when and how and where and so on, um, which I think is important. And I think generally regulation needs to follow what the market does rather than tell the market how to exist, because that tends to just drive the business away anyway. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, how it interoperates with CBDC it remains to be seen because we haven't got one yet in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think some, quite a lot of the infrastructure, payments infrastructure, is unaffected by CBDC as I see it. Um, you know, I don't think you need blockchain. I don't think you need CBDC necessarily in order to have faster payments, in order to have legal certainty for the purposes of clearing or payments. Um, we do have 19 sort of 70s technology for much of our infrastructure, financial infrastructure that's sort of with patches on it uh, that, that, that needs up, upgrading, frankly, but in a very dramatic way. And CBDC in a way, or blockchain may be the trigger for that, may well be, and that's a good thing. Um, I mean, when we're looking, by the way, just it occurred to me, picking up on a point earlier at uh, what the ECB's timetable is, I mean, I think one has to remember this, the ECB and the Eurozone have a unique legal situation and all sorts of uh, issues to solve, which we don't in the UK. Uh, not least um, the problems of governance over, over the currency, um, because the member states want to be able to treat their debt as zero risk weighted and sovereign, uh, but of course they don't control the central bank. 
Um, and there are massive disparities between the various economies of the members. And so the Eurozone and the ECB are under, under massive pressures that um, it's easy to overlook um, because it's not a normal currency at all in law. Um, so you know, their timetable, their motivations and so on are, are very are, are unique. They've got, they've got some unique drivers. And one other point I'd pick up on is tokenized deposits someone mentioned. And tokenization generally introduces a new legal um, issue. And the government obviously are looking at, and the treasury are looking at, um, are consulting at the moment on the regulation of digital assets in crypto. But and they're introducing a new crypto definition. Um, but a token on its own, you know, which then is referable to something that introduces the risk that the thing it's referable to isn't fully joined to the token. And it could be, you know, it could be traded away with something the the underlying thing not being there when the chips are down. Uh, and there are all sorts of legal and regulatory issues that that, that brings to, to bear. It seems to me, CBDC, to that extent, is a very safe asset, not just because of the issuer, but because you, um, you 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 have the simplest possible legal structure. Uh, and so, uh, and with the fewest moving parts, and generally speaking, with fewer moving parts, things things tend to be safer. That's another factor to bear in mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we could have stable coins backed by eligible assets on sheets. So um, that would be uh -huh. kind of synthetic CBDC, wouldn't it? You brought up these tokenized deposits like the JPM coin. Uh, we've seen them issued, I think, by Wells Fargo and um, planned by Jewel Bank and this consortium of banks in the US, National Australia Bank, ANZ have, have brought up these. These are the kind of innovation that we're starting to see, which is when I'd like, I'd like to bring up um, the question which Dennis Boyle has asked us about interoperability, because if we end up with this quite complex monetary system, we haven't already, but this will be complex too. We'll have CBDCs, we'll have stable coins, we'll have tokenized deposits, we'll have e-money, we'll have utility tokens, uh, we'll have cryptocurrencies uh, in this system. And then if the system is to be stable and uh, and efficient. And Dennis Boyle's question is, given the extensive development, this is for you, Gilbert, is directed specifically at you, given the extensive development of central bank digital currencies and their necessities, I didn't even mention cross-border, but we're going to have that problem as well, real-time cross-border payments, the requirement for global interoperability is crucial in enabling this new paradigm. Will the secure asset transfer protocol, SATP, be the primary protocol of these digital assets? That's a question for, for, for you. Um, I, I think it's a great um, use case to solve. And, and the reason is we, we, all, we all have an inherited, a very fragmented domestic payment system in each country. Um, and the very nature of sovereignty is not allowed payment flows to be cross-border very easily from, from the outset as, as they were designed. Um, so having that as a baseline, how do we integrate different domestic payment systems with each other so that you can have... Yeah, but just to be clear, is this is the SATP is like a, a technical standard, is it? Yeah, so what, what we've done is we've worked with MIT um, and we've created uh, within the IATF, so Internet Engineering Task Force, which is where the home of TCP IP, HTTP, everything kind of sits within the ITF. Um, so the SATP was approved um, and that is a, a working group to create uh, an RFC, a, a request for comment, which basically is a is the document for a protocol. Um, and the whole 
thesis behind what needs solving is the gateway to gateway interconnectivity between networks. So if you treat a domestic payment system as a single network, you want to connect the UK network to the European network, to the US network, et cetera. The gateways are the ones that are going to do all the work between networks. And so SATP solves that problem by having uh, the routing between gateways, the discoverability, and then the transactions between gateways. So having a, a globally accepted standard and a globally accepted protocol um, is, a, is a great way to integrate and interoperate different jurisdictions and different networks um, with, with a common common language. Mm -hmm. There's another and, question. And just that, I mean, just, uh, I'll let you come in in a sec, but just um, a, a specific question for, for Gilbert, which is from Lee Beresford. Does Quant still own the Tradera AI and is it, and is it integrated within the Quant overledger? Um, no, that's a, that's a no. very lengthy thing. So. Okay. Is that all you need to say is no? Okay, Lee, the answer is no. Sorry. Who was Sorry, that? Sorry, yeah. Was that Ricardo? Saying no, no, I was just going to say, you know, if, if we can have proper interoperability and if there's atomic settlement for, um, as in, you know, real time settlement for these transactions, that would then potentially do away with a bit of infrastructure that was built to deal with the problems of, um, of the international currency payments um, system, CLS Bank. You know, a lot of this technology has the potential to allow for the removal of intermediaries, which resolve risk to some degree, but also add risk to another, <laughs> to, to another degree. So um, I think there's, there's big opportunities here and it's very exciting to hear what Gilbert's saying can be done. Um, and if it can be done, then there will need to be a new legal and regulatory architecture around this, obviously to make sure it's predictable and there'll be need to be agreements between the central banks. Uh, so that they get what they think they're going to guess at the moment in time when they think they're going to guess it. But I think that's all resolvable relatively quickly, uh, especially if we're actually ultimately simplifying things rather than adding complexity. On that on that cross-border use case issue, I was, I was very interested to see Project Icebreaker. This is one between the BIS, uh, Norway, Sweden and Israel. Uh, proposing this very simple hub and spoke model in which FX banks active in both the CBDC systems um, will be able to continue to will actually compete to complete these cross currency transactions, the FX component of it, um, as as coordinated transactions within domestic settlement systems. So you don't actually have to hook up CBDC systems; you can actually do it with your existing infrastructure. I thought that was a, a interesting way forward for the cross border payments case. Now into our last. Um, almost into our last five minutes here, I'd like to, to address some of the questions which our audience are, are, are still raising. Um, Ian Hunt has pointed out that YouTube's full of scares about government control through CBDCs. He says just because the Bank of England says it won't issue a programmable CBDC doesn't mean it, it isn't possible. Uh, how can we reassure the public? He sent a, a curious link here, which I daren't open in case it takes me somewhere, which I regret, um, but I will do so after the show is over. Um, he, more importantly, he, he asks, um, isn't the real use of CBDC likely to be in wholly digital transactions in native digital assets where participants have a stable means of exchange, but stable store of value, eliminating the need for issuance, redemption of cash tokens uh, into and out of um, fiat currency? And as I said right at the outset, that was Ben Broadbent's early use case was, was capital markets. Keith, what's your answer to Ian? <laughs> Thank you for the question, Ian. Question. Uh, the, uh, I mean, I think uh, one of the key objectives, I think, for a CBTC, a retail CBTC, is to support the future state of the digital economy. 
And, uh, you know, you can, it's hard to conceive. We haven't really touched very much on Metaverse and Web3 and all the rest of it. Uh, mm -hmm. But if that's uh, what a major part of the economy is going to be in seven, ten years' time, whenever we see a, a CBDC, for instance, uh, mm -hmm. then uh, that's something that a CBDC would need to be able to support. And just because we can't see it today in that way doesn't mean it won't be like that by the time that a CBDC is uh, out in the wild. So I think what Ian's you know suggesting is that you know ultimately this will be what we would expect. We would expect a uh, atomic settlement between uh, tokenized cash and tokenized assets, whatever the asset might be, um, you know, be it NFTs in the metaverse or your cup of coffee at a, a Starbucks or whatever, uh, you know, a whole wide range of things. So, yes, I agree with that, but I think it's kind of hard to predict what that future state is going to be. And we obviously have various stages as a progression to go through that through today's version of the economy all the way through to what tomorrow's might look like. Mm -hmm. And the CBDC design uh, needs to facilitate that. So, will, will T plus one settlement accelerate that adoption? Do you think? What in securities? You mean? I mean, again, I think or funds? Very, yeah. Well, it, it's, it's happening in the US, so it could. It's happening in the US without uh, any recourse to blockchain, or uh, mm -hmm. that raises that's a whole number of panel discussion. I think uh, mm -hmm. in terms of the way that tokenized cash and tokenized settlement. Uh, may impact um, getting to instantaneous settlements and the pros and cons of that. And well, will we have a bifurcation of financial market infrastructure between the tokenized world and the traditional world, which may be T plus one by that stage. So I think there's a whole separate set of questions there as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but certainly on the retail side, I think, um, you know, we have quite a journey of discovery to go through, including the points that uh, Ian makes as well, as far as that's concerned. And the ultimate picture might look like Ian describes, but I think we've got various stages to go through before we get to that point. Keith, I think you're, you're well pleased to answer this question from Piers Cardew too, where he, he's referring to a comment Barney made, made me wonder whether commercial banks take CBDCs on as deposits or in a custodial capacity. If we look at the Bank of England model, where the commercial banks are a kind of, are the interface with the, with, with CBDCs held on a, in effect, on a register at the, at the Bank of England, are those banks acting as custodians or as principals? Good question, Barney. I don't know if you have a view on that. Sorry, I don't mean to duck it, but it's a good question. Apparently, <laughs> so well, under the, uh, the CBDC, if it's issued by the Bank of England, would then, if it's held by a commercial bank, be held either on a back-to-back -back basis, so it could still continue to take deposits and have a debtor-credit relationship with its customer. And obviously, that would, be, that would introduce the commercial bank's own balance sheet risk for which it would have to pay interest. That's how I see it. So all of these different choices carry with them uh, and, you know, different economics, and, and there'll be consequences to that. Or the commercial bank could hold the CBDC on trust so that uh, the beneficiary would have effectively the ability to collapse the trust and, and get the CBDC back straight from the Bank of England. And there the commercial bank is not funding itself at all through the CBDC, it's just holding it in a separate standalone pool which would be ring funds from its insolvency. And in that case, that's then when you have this idea that the any sort of return on the holding of that CBDC would have to be generated by lending the CBDC to someone else. It could be to the bank itself for use in return for some sort of share of profits. So I see that being a new thing that would develop. And you could have that with you know, some, any of these other instruments in principle. I mean, you can use, you can use these things and hold them on trust. Uh, but CBDC would be the purest and safest form of that. And obviously that would carry with it no no benefit at all financially, apart from where it's put into use somewhere else where you get a share of the return. Mm -hmm. 
Thanks, uh, Barney. Um, here's a question for you, uh, Ricardo, from Kim Borgen. How would you design a CBD system without a cap? I would have asked that. Can you design a CBD system without a cap? But what's your answer to Kim on that? You, you look at lots of these designs. Have you come across one yet which is able to dispense with that? Uh, well, listen, technically you could do that. Um, so yes, you could design a CBC technically with no cap. But I think from a policy and legal perspective, no. So, I mean, we've, we're seeing caps come out of the consulting paper from uh, the UK and so on. So, yeah, technically you could. I think politically, legally, you, you won't be able to. Well, the other way of doing it is uh, CBC pays a negative interest rate. And that would yeah, be so an a cap as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's been that's been in discussion as well. So, I mean, the short answer is yes, technically, uh, but no, not legally or politically. No, but a negative interest rate might be quite a useful uh, monetary tool. Um, I remember Andy Holden making speeches to to that effect. I think before we even started talking about CBDCs, um, which brings me to a question by um, another attendee: Could the CBDCs allow for direct monetary policy via programmable money? We've sort of touched. We've sort of touched upon yeah, this. Yeah, and the bank is, uh, I think, makes the point in the paper that uh, that isn't the intention in the sense of using programmability, which is why there's no intention mm. to have programmability at the CB, at the central bank side, only at the uh, intermediary side. Mm-hmm. But, but could you? Would you say that you still, despite not having programmability, might a CBDC be used in some way uh, to help uh, monetary policy? without programmability maybe um in my mind perhaps it doesn't need the programmability in order to influence that just the currency and circulation stability you know these kind of things we could still influence that without programmability so you know i suppose what you could do is you could ask for some of the cbdc back from people willing to give it up um and and so you know because you then know where people are at the moment you know um the tools are pretty crude for for taking money out of the market but you could you could you can go in both directions because of the transparency you have over where the cbdc is and then you can ask people that are prepared to give it back or some of it back yeah and, and also for distribution if if there's a disbursement needed from the central bank for economic stability for whatever reason it'll be very easy for the central bank to put a thousand pounds in everyone's account almost instantly Rather than the current system, it may take a long time to, to be able to do that. So COVID loans, you know, things like that that we saw that had an economic impact can be accelerated very quickly to, to stabilize the economy. And here's a slightly controversial point, given that we've seen what's happened over the last several weeks. Could you prevent a run on the bank, right? Um, and, but is that programmability or is that like stop gaps or some other types of control that you could put on this money, on digital forms of money that could that could add stability into the ecosystem, you know, without us kind of seeing... By stopping you taking your money out of the bank? Uh, Yeah, I know. I said it was controversial. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know... It just involves that. I don't think so. I mean, if it's just the CBDC... Well, if the CBDC is back-to-back and so it's a debtor-credit relationship, the commercial bank is in no different position to now. It can just refuse to pay back quickly and it have gates and all sorts of things. Um, If it's held on trust then uh, there wouldn't be a run on the bank because the bank doesn't have the asset on its balance sheet. So I think, so, so it, it, the, the use of CBDC held on trust at banks would reduce uh, the amount of maturity transformation in the world. And uh, it would reduce the risk from the banking system. But on the other hand, 
it would also presumably reduce or change um, the volume of funds available for the real economy for particularly longer term investments. Um, maybe people would sign up and say, look, I'm prepared to lock up my CBDC for 25 years in return for this rate. Uh, but I, I wonder whether people would. I think most people would say, well, I want it to be available real time. So the uses of the CBDC held on trust are going to be quite marginal, I think, for the economy as a whole. So you do I still need banks, and then the banks need to be able to, to control inflows, outflows, and they're exposed to those, obviously. And then, you know, they can collapse. They can be run on the bank if, if you accept that proposition and that line of analysis. Well, we're, we're running out of time now. We've, we've run over a bit. I, I want to ask each of you one final question to give the audience something to, to take away with them. But I'd like to, to address the final question asked by a member of the audience. Brady Storm asked, will CBDCs be backed by hard assets? gold and silver. Gilbert, that's the sort of thing you will have thought about. The gold bug CBDC, is it a possibility? We're uh, seeing gold-backed stable coins, aren't we? Yeah, I, I think not. I think there, there will be the, the same uh, central bank deposits of today from the commercial banks. It, it will not have um, hard assets. Mm -hmm. that, that would not be in the realm of a CBDC. It will be, it'll be in the realm of a asset-backed stable coin. Mm -hmm. Okay, a final question for each of you. This is about uh, about the future of, of CBDCs, because the great question, which has been ever since Bitcoin first appeared on the scene, is how do you get money on chain, fiat currency money, reliable money on chain? And so digital money is now seen as this crucial building block for a fully digitized economy, what, what we call the Web3 economy, i.e. It's, it's decentralized, it's peer-to-peer, -peer, it's not intermediated by all these central Somebody mentioned the metaverse. We could we could get into that. That's an expression of, of what I'm talking about. And I was very interested when I visited the, the, the NEOM digital city website, which Saudi Arabia is building this digital city uh, in the desert. And that implied very strongly that they see a central bank digital currency as crucial component of uh, economic life inside this, uh, this futuristic uh, city. So and each of you may have a different perspective on this, but do you see CBDCs as an, an appropriate or even a crucial underpinning for Web3 economy? Gilbert, can you address that first? Um, yeah, I think we are uh, ever more becoming a digital society and, and most of our transacting and interacting is becoming even more digital and leading to sell, selling and transacting of digital goods and services. So we need a new form of money as a new instrument to cater for the digital way that we live. Um, and so a CBDC is a natural fit because it's trusted. We covered that you know, from, from Barney and, and Ricardo and Keith. Um, having a, a, an asset that's backed by the central bank for you to transact gives you the safety and confidence that it is valid and it is accepted and, and it can be redeemed anytime you need to. If you use non-CBDC assets, then you have things like uh, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, things like Tether that, that are not as reliable as, as a central bank. So we, we need that to be able to do it. Barney, are you looking forward to a, to a Web3 metaversal economy in which every form of property is being traded in the form of an NFT and the cash leg is in CBDC? Is that an exciting future for the legal profession? Well, 
I mean, obviously making that work legally is, is fascinating. I'd love to, I, I am actually involved in some of those sorts of projects, in fact, because um, it, it is a real time topic. Uh, but uh, once the infrastructure is in place, the job's done and it just works away. I think the I think it is the direction of travel. I think it's necessary, as far as I can determine. Talking, you know, just hearing this conversation today, there needs to be an on-chain payment instrument. It, it needs to be as versatile as possible. Something that's ledger-based is clearly um, it would appear inferior in that context, if if not um, inoperable. Um, and so, you know, we do need to innovate. And then, as you just said, if you're going to do it, um, in, if you're going to go down this route, in fact, every legal entitlement can be tokenized and traded. Uh, and that's the really most exciting, the most exciting thing. And in fact, then they change the whole maturity transformation debate, uh, uh, i.e. whether to have it or not, um, because it may allow for people to buy interests in, you know, assets and, and um, projects and so on all over the world, not just where they live, um, in a way that's legally certain and trade those and provide funding to those who wish to have it on terms uh, in a way that, that traditionally the banks have done and so maybe there is it's going to open up a new um world of of capital reallocation you know or capital allocation uh between people who are willing to to provide some and those uh, wanting to get hold of it on terms so i think it's a very exciting thing it absolutely it depends on uh the law and regulatory legal and regulatory structure uh to be credible and trusted well, can uh, I, on that, I can I on that point? Can, can I be very greedy and ask you? Can you those legal entitlements, those legal contracts, can those be fractionalized, broken into smaller pieces? So you take uh, a security as a bundle of contracts, you break it into its various pieces, and then you can sell and trade sort of sub bundles of a bundled contract. Is that is that how how accommodating is the law going to be to that? Call it fractionalization. Well, the, so this is where the UK has this inbuilt advantage. I mean, the, the common law and our notion of the trust allows for the breaking apart of property interests already. And so, you know, the financial global financial markets operate on the that's why the main global financial centres are in New York and London and operates, you know, a lot of the market operates on the base of the trust, which is exactly this concept. And essentially, it's exceedingly versatile and can be used for exactly what you're describing. So we can do it. Um, and the legal technology is already there. Now, obviously, drafting things around it and thinking of the what ifs and providing for all the permutations will take some cold tiling, but it can all be done. Um, and we've got the, the, you know, the whole system will support that. System will support it. It just needs to be defined on paper, you know, if we can still use paper uh, in some way that we you can all read the terms and conditions and figure out whether or not every scenario is catered for. Thank you, Barney. Um, Keith, the last word from you. Software's eating the world. Um, everything's going digital. Are you sitting in the, the Bank of England technology forum meetings talking about Web3 and NFTs and fractionalization? Is this is this an integral part of the way that, that the bank is thinking? Uh, I can't comment on the bank, but it's certainly a, a key aspect for me and, uh, and and my perspectives on the future. And uh, that's very much one of the inputs I'm trying to give through that forum. Mm -hmm. uh, the other comment I'd make, uh, going back to your original question, uh, the bank published a blog, I think, last year, talking about the systemic risk in the metaverse if uh, uh, crypto assets were used as a means of the primary payment for digital goods within a Web3 and metaverse environment. 
and uh, and therefore they don't say this, but the, the logical extension of that is uh, the way to mitigate that risk. Obviously, is by having a CBDC available. Um, but I think we're, uh, you know, there aren't any explicit statements of that in the bank's uh, consultation paper yet. But as I said earlier, I think it's fascinating to see that some of the central bank experiments going on in other countries, Brazil notably, is very much looking at that sort of uh, thing. So I think it's uh, inevitable that we will get there. Um, but as I said, we've got multiple steps in the journey in front of us. Mm-hmm. Ricardo, it, it falls to you to to see us out um, on the yes. question of CBDCs and the Web3 economy of the future. Do you think we're all going to end up living in sort of neon style cities? Well, I don't know, but maybe in metaverses, my son lives in one every day. It's called Minecraft. Is, is he happy? He, oh, he's extremely happy. And also, okay. let's all go there then. So, yeah, I think, listen, it, you know, ultimately we hear a lot about optionality, you know, and if you peel the onion on Web3, what do you need? You've got to bring your identity, you've got to bring your cash, you've got to bring your assets, and they're all yours and they're all custodied by you and you're just your wallets and we're going to change the way that things work today. Your identity and your assets and so on are going to live with you. You know, self-custody is another whole conversation. But for me, I think, you know, you need identity, you need assets, you need cash for Web3. Certainly that's what we're hearing, the key foundations. And in terms of the digital cash, CBDC is the safest form, but maybe not the only form. You know, so I know that, you know, the, the blog that Keith just talks about is a bit of a scaremongering kind of, you know, hey, this is really bad. And we did see a lot of really bad stuff, you know, rug pulls and pumps and dumps and, you know, all the things that kind of made made investors lose uh, kind of significant kind of uh, uh, kind of investments over the course of the last couple of years. So CBDC seems to be like the safest form, guaranteed safe. I can go and participate, but there could be different risk tolerances with different people that would mean that they could you know, uh, forgo a CBDC for a stable coin or a crypto asset, right, or cryptocurrency. Um, but optionality, I think, is going to be important. Well, as uh, a member of our audience, uh, Nikos Daskalakis says, what a great discussion that was. Thank you all. Uh, we'll have to stop there. I'd like personally to thank our, our panelists, uh, Ricardo Correa from R3, Barney Reynolds from Sherman and Sterling, Gilbert Verdian from Quant, and Keith Baer from the Judge Business School and the Bank of England Technology Forum. I'd like to thank you, members of the audience, also for your many questions and your comments. Uh, Here at Future of Finance, our next uh, event will coincide with the publication of a paper on a topic closely related to CBDCs, namely stablecoins, and details and dates for that will follow shortly. And I hope many of you will be able to join us there and then. But for now, it's goodbye from the five of us. 